certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Just when the trial of the century was due to enter its final days, another unexpected delay stopped proceedings. Hello and welcome back to Claremont in Conversation. Natalie Bongiolo, Damien Cripps and Tim Clark with you. So Tim, you're at court this morning, you're there, you're ready to go and then at the 11th hour a decision is made and you're not going to court. Yeah, that's right, Matt. My, uh, I had a fresh notepad ready to go, my pencils were sharpened and then, um, yeah, unfortunately we were informed that uh, there would be a little bit of a delay, um, which hadn't been flagged at all until we actually arrived at court. Um, The reasons for that delay are a little bit uh, vague at the moment. Um, The official line from the WA Supreme Court, it was uh, a public health concern, which sounds quite dramatic. Mm. Um, I I had been led to understand that it might have been some, some mild um, that um, prosecutor Carmel Barber Gallo had come down with over the last 24 to 48 hours. But um, the court has since told me that might not be correct. So we're still a little bit in the dark. But what we do know, obviously, is that we didn't go ahead today. And as it stands right now, we should be going ahead uh, tomorrow. So uh, we'll wait and see. And was Bradley Edwards brought to court this morning? Well, that was my understanding that uh, the van had brought him up from Casarina Prison. Um, but again, I'm not entirely clear on that because I didn't see the van with my own eyes. But that was my understanding. Um, as we've described before, to get to court for a 10 o'clock start, you do have to leave significantly earlier than that. Um, to, uh, to go through all the security checks that ha- obviously have to be done, um, checking someone out of a high-security prison and then checking them into court. Um, but uh, again, I, what I do know for sure, because I did see this with my own eyes, were that his parents were there and fully expecting um, proceedings to start on time. Um, but uh, theirs was a wasted trip, um, as, was, uh, as was mine, and as was a lot of people that um, did turn up at court expecting to, to see it all start um, today. So, yeah. yeah, as I say, fingers crossed. It's only a short delay and it's not a significant health concern from one of the major parties and we'll, um, we'll get underway uh, tomorrow uh, being Tuesday. I mean, I guess given the COVID situation, you can understand um, that there would be a high degree of caution around anyone who's feeling unwell. But I guess apart from that, Damien, uh, you know, a, a key player, where it, whether it be the prosecutor or the defence, is it really important that they are feeling at their best? I, um, Nat, I think it's imperative. I think that if you... you, you because you're only going to have your own... You're going to have to... Um, answer to yourself later on if you've missed something you know like and, um, you've got the opportunity you've always got the opportunity to say look I'm not up to it I'm not feeling well and um, there's a really strong sense in the legal fraternity of um, you know, life health and balance and all that kind of um, positive thinking about keeping people in good health and if, if I would have thought that if any practitioner got to court and was feeling under under the weather they would be well within their rights to say to the court and the court would encourage them to do it um, you know, to let them know and 
seek an adjournment, you know, albeit one day or however long it would be. So I think that the, the answer must be that you, if you are going to proceed in a, uh, under a guise of illness, um, you know, you're only going to have yourself to blame later on because the court will grant you the opportunity to stand down sick for, you know, a brief period. Yeah. And I guess a closing submissions almost, you know, they're like the grand final of the season. You know, how draining is it in the lead up to this and, and just how much effort and energy goes into closing submissions? I think that they're extremely draining. Some practitioners not might not agree with me. When when you would be working on a closing for a matter with the amount of evidence that this matter has had and the amount of time that this matter has been going for, and you you you're trying to link all the dots, you know, and link all the dots in a really cogent way uh, to an extremely intelligent human who's I mean it's not a jury, you you, you know. That's with all due respect to juries. It's not a jury. You're talking to someone who's um, done plenty of closing submissions before in the past and has been recognised uh, beyond that, such that they're, they're sitting in the position that Justice Hall is. It's you know you what you it would be. I would have thought it would be very stress stressful to be in that position of of getting those closings together. I mean, I know even um, for, for practitioners who are operating in in the in the lower courts, it's it's stressful because you don't want to miss anything. You want to make sure that you raise all the things that have happened and for the prosecution, anticipate what the defence will say and try to nip those things in the bud and vice versa for the defence. You know, like, I mean, obviously the defence will get to hear the prosecution's closing and can make some notes while that's going on and, and be able to address those things. But it's it's a significantly stressful time, especially when a trial's been going this long. Yeah. And I guess, you know, people have been waiting with bated breath for this uh, trial to resume. It's been four weeks. Is a day delay or another couple of days delay, is that problematic in any way, do you think? Can you foresee how this would, um, you know, upset either side? No, no, I don't think I don't think it's problematic in any way, shape or form in the terms of the structure and the management of the trial. It's problematic because of, because of the cost. But, it, I mean, I don't, there's nothing you can do about that. I mean, I think that especially given the current um, health status around the world... I mean, we're trying to. We're hearing now that the, the status moving forward for everybody is going to be: if you feel sick, don't don't soldier on, stay home. So, it, I mean, it did fly in the face of all of those um, new uh, motives, if we could put it that way, that people, someone would go to um, go to court and. Uh, present a closing on a matter this significant if they weren't filling up to it. Yeah. Um, Tim and I were just chatting in the last podcast and saying how, you know, it is actually quite extraordinary that the trial got to the point at which it is right now anyway. Tim, how had court prepared for the return today? Uh, You know, they were expecting, I imagine, some crowds? Yes, they were, Nat, and some crowds have actually turned up at 8.30 ready to... um, to take their position in in the court, and then they were sort of politely but firmly told by the security, "Well, it's not going ahead today." So that was an inconvenience for them, obviously. Um, other massive measures have been put in place, so the the, the live streaming into another courtroom um, away from the actual courtroom had had all also been arranged um, specifically for that reason um, that they were anticipating more people that had to turn up today than had. Um, maybe before we had the break. Um, they've obviously put social distancing measures in place in court, um, which 
will obviously still stand, whether it be tomorrow or later on in the week when we do get underway. So significant sort of efforts um, had uh, had been made by the court, ready for the resumption today, quite sensibly, obviously. Um, and so every measure has been put in place to, to make sure it goes ahead. But um, when, as we think, one of the main players in court is not feeling well in the current climate, obviously there was going to be um, no issue with getting that um, that temporary um, adjournment. Um, uh, but as I say, we just we just hope it's um, not um, anything more serious than a, than a mild cold or something like that, and we can all. Um, we can all carry on regardless um, whether it be tomorrow or, or in the coming days. Mm. Did you happen to uh, get to talk to any of the members of the public who had turned up or, or any of the um, victims' families? Because as we have talked about, this was quite a significant day for the Rimmer family. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, yes, I did. Um, and there was um, uh, some frustration, natural frustration, if someone makes the commitment to come into coming to court and then it doesn't happen obviously that that that's gonna that's gonna put your uh, put your plans um to one side um i have spoken to someone that's been um sort of helping the rumors through the trial this morning as well and um as we mentioned on our podcast over the weekend today is a significant day and tomorrow is a significant day for them because it's the 24th anniversary of of jane's disappearance so this day was always going to be difficult for them um, on a couple of levels and um, that person told me that um, it, it didn't make it any easier for them today that court didn't go ahead but at least they didn't make the trip I understand that they were given um, enough warning to, to say look it, it might not go ahead this morning so you might not want to jump in the car or jump on the train um, and so yeah it's, it's it's annoying I suppose frustrating um, for, for everyone because Having had a trial go for, for this long and to be this close to the end um, for it to be delayed, um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a speed bump, but um, as I said, hopefully not a, not a big one. Yeah, I mean, it's good to hear that um, some of those people did get the heads up, possibly. Mm-hmm. We've just got a couple of questions that we might answer before we head off. So this is from Trent Green, and he says, given the prosecution is no longer pursuing the emotional upset argument... Is it actually required to identify a motive for the offence to the court? And what is the answer to this question used for? And how does it go towards potential sentencing, etc.? Oh boy! Bit gone back there. Well, the starting point I think has to be, which you say it time and time again, the prosecution have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that whatever they're alleging has taken place in, in, in the format that they say it's ta- taken place. And there's a few things in there which we refer to in the legal world as elements. And I'm not going to go into what the elements are, but motive isn't one of them. So y- y- it's not a case where, well, my understanding is it's not a case that the, the prosecution needs to show a motive. But what mo- the way that a motive would play out in any court case is that it... it it creates an inference. It creates something that would lend itself to supporting the the prosecution's theory. So in, in the case that the prosecution um, may have let go of um, the emotional argument, um, as that listener asks, it's, it's still um, 
it's still the prosecution's case, well, I imagine it will be, there's still the prosecution's case that um, the accused person did all these things that they're alleging that he, um, he did. And they will, they don't necessarily need to address why he did it. I mean, it's helpful if they can, but if they can't, it's not the end of the world. I mean, sometimes you might just never know why someone did what what, what they did. Um, and, and, and I think the last part of that question, um, Nat, was how, how does it, what impact does it have on someone down the track during the court process, i.e. sentencing? Yeah. Well, I don't think, I think that there, there are some, I do come across circumstances where I think, oh, this is actually quite a relevant um, thing for sentencing where someone might actually be guilty of something and this is not in any way related to the Claremont cases in, in any legal matter that, that somebody might actually be guilty of something but they've got something that really has an impact on what their sentence might be so you know it's, it's the mitigating factor and and I think that might be what the listeners alluding yes. to um, but in in terms of what the motive might have been um, it's, if you think about this case, I mean, it's hard to imagine that we will get any insight into that. You, you, you know, I mean, let's say um, the accused person is convicted. Well, I don't necessarily, or well, history wouldn't suggest that a person who gets convicted is going to all, all, all of a sudden turn around and say, yes, yes, I agree, I've, I actually did this and this is the reasons why I did this. And if he's acquitted, well, the same applies. I mean, I just don't know that there's ever going to be Anything, I mean, there'll be things put forward in mitigation, um, but I don't know that they'll address specific things like motive. I mean, stranger things have happened, but it seems to me if you just thought logically about it, what what could be said in mitigation for um, anyone who was convicted in this um, scenario is limited yes. pretty much to their personal circumstances and, and, and what their, um, you know, other surrounding things rather than, the elements of the case. I mean, I've been in sentencings before um, where I've thought to myself, gee, what, what is it that we could say about this person? And, you know, after they've been convicted at a, at a trial, what is it you can say? I mean, there's, there is always things you can say, but it is a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a tricky situation because if they've been, they pled not guilty and then they've been convicted at a trial, I mean, it, it, it's a bit of a sticky sentencing environment, isn't it? Yeah. We also have a question from Danielle, which I'm not sure that we can answer at this stage either, Danielle, but uh, she asks, do you know if the verdict will be televised like the Pell case as the case is so high profile and has national interest? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a question that I understand is being tossed around at the very highest level of uh, WA legal circles uh, right now, I think. There are some um, within the legal fraternity very high up that would like it to be live streamed um, at the very least via the court website because of several reasons. Obviously, the public interest, the public um, purse has, has, has shelled out a lot of money um, for this trial to be staged um, and going to social distancing and, and the, the likely um, attendance in court on the day of that verdict will be um, huge. Um, I think some feeling is that if it were to be live streamed, then that might um, help the management of the, the, the public and the, the traffic that might be through the court. But then on the other hand, there are um, logistical um, things that would have to be put in place and very um, relevant legal um, principles that would have to be um, thought about as well. Most 
notably, I suppose, the um, witnesses who have had their identities suppressed over the whole um, uh, series of pre-trial hearings and the trial itself, if there were to be an inadvertent slip by one of the parties um, addressing the court and one of those um, names happened to be mentioned um, and it was being live streamed, then that would cause a lot of um, issues, obviously. So there's, there's big things to be weighed up, but I, I, I'm certain that it is being considered um, that that might be be, um, that might occur um, on the day of the verdict. There's another level to that, I suppose, in that whether um, broadcasters and media will be allowed a, a camera into the court to record the proceedings, but ne not necessarily um, broadcast them live. That's another consideration. Um, there's obviously the audio transcript of the court that is being placed on the Supreme Court website, but that is having some um, delay put on it as well. So, yeah, a lot of um, a lot of balls in the air um, there, um, and I'm sure that we will get some more clarity around that. Um, hopefully, uh, well in advance of the verdict, so we can all make um, the necessary arrangements yeah. um, um, for to get ready. Um, for, for that day of the verdict. Yeah, you can see why live could be um, potentially problematic, whereas pre-recording uh, would allow for any you know slip-ups that can be taken out. But if you think back to the kinds of crowds that we have seen at very high-profile verdicts, you know, you're talking massive, massive scrums of people. Yeah, and... But my understanding is that, that certainly WA police are very well aware of what the interest might be on that on the day of the verdict when Justice Hall's um, verdict is handed down, um, and so they are going to place uh, some significant arrangements around that in terms of um, ingress and egress of court for the general public, for the media, for the families, um, most notably probably after the verdict because that is when. Um, you are trying to get close to those all those parties to try and um, see if they want to say anything, um, and that can cause its own issues because um, there are rules around what you're allowed to do on the court environs. Um, that means that a lot of the time you're on a public footpath, which can cause its own um, issues. And one significant trial that we we've touched on it during the podcast, the, the Lloyd Rainey murder trial. I, I I did cover that verdict on that day, and it did descend. I've got to say, oh. to a bit of a a bit of a a, um, a free for all on the front courts of the steps, which yep. is, is is not it's, it's not really beneficial for anyone, um, particularly those that um, are very close to to victims. Um, but you know the general public. Um, it, I mean, it just it, it caused a lot of problems. I, I, I think the WA police have that in their mind, that particular um, trial in their mind, um, and they know this is going to be as big, probably a lot bigger than that in terms of just a, a, an event 
the, the, the WA justice system will have to try and manage as best they can. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned the audio recordings and we've had a couple of questions from you out there about not being able to access or being unable to find the audio recordings. Mm. So, Kate Ryan, our producer, has given a very clear rundown of how you can find it. So, basically, as of today, you can still access the audio from the court. You go onto the Supreme Court of Western Australia website go onto the main page and there will be a link there which says State of WA versus Bradley Robert Edwards audio and that audio recording is right there and then what you need to do, you would need to enter your email address and then you have to agree to the terms and conditions and then the court will email you a link and part of that is you cannot record, copy or send that audio anywhere else. So that's basically how it works, and it is available and there right now. Well, thank you both very much for your time, and uh, fingers crossed that whoever is feeling unwell is feeling better for tomorrow. And Tim and Alison and myself will be back tomorrow with Day 86 of Claremont in Conversation, and we look forward to joining you then. This podcast is hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. And if local news delivered differently appeals to you, tune into WA's newest morning show, The West Live with Jenna Clark. It's talkback radio, but without the interruptions. Listen live weekdays from 8.45am on thewest.com.au or catch up with the podcast.